So thanks for having me. Um, and thanks for acknowledging that newspaper reporters, in their own small way, have a role to play in recording and preserving history. I have, uh, I've loved reading history and biography, which is, as you all know, kind of a form of history all my life. And that is also true of a good friend of mine, John McNay from Anaconda. He and I met in journalism school uh, in Missoula back in the 70s. I went on to work at the uh, uh, Anaconda Bureau of the Montana Standard. And John worked for about five or six years and uh, went back to college. And he got a master's degree and later a doctorate in history and now teaches history at the University of Cincinnati. And I used to envy John because uh, he would tell me about all these adventures in academia and it seemed like a really good deal, but there were uh, other times when I think John would have envied me because I was paid to travel all over Montana. I got to write about fascinating people, important events, and uh, as you all know, sometimes some very crazy goings on. And I was also allowed to dabble in history. And history, as such, was never really a part of any of the beats I had. But from my first job in journalism in Anaconda, I was just drawn to write stories that had a historical angle to them. One of the first stories I remember writing was about a direct descendant of Marcus Daly, who still lived in town. And another early story was about an old 90-year-old uh, man who had worked an astounding number of jobs all over Montana, including a job at the arsenic refinery up on the hill at the Anaconda Smelter. And at the end of the interview, I asked him, as you often do when you're a journalist talking to somebody 90 years old, what the secret was to his long life. And he claimed it was the daily ingestion of a teaspoonful of arsenic. And I said, seriously? And he said, oh yeah, cure a poison with a poison. So uh, I've always considered my job as a journalist to be to explain the world to readers, to help them understand the world and their place in the world. And I always considered that the history of a particular place was as important to understanding it as was covering uh, legislatures, city councils, county commissions, that kind of thing. And that, anyway, was kind of my highfalutin theory of what I did, or my unified theory of reporting. But the truth is, I just love to tell interesting offbeat stories, oddball slices of life, anything that would give the reader some relief from the daily catalog of murders, DUIs, and political scandals. And if some of those diverting stories were historical in nature, all the better. Which brings me to the first story I wanted to tell you about. It was a story I wrote back in 2009 about the petrified man, also called The Wonder of the Century and Nature's Masterpiece by journalists. The petrified man was supposedly discovered in the Missouri River a little downstream of Fort Benton in 1897. And then beginning in 1899 and into the early 1900s, it was put on display all over Montana for 25 cents a pop. Early in 1900, its owner decided to extend the tour to Chicago and New York because he was making so much money in Montana. And right before he was to leave on the tour, he suddenly uh, 
announced that the previously unidentified petrified man was recognized as Thomas Francis Marr, <laughs> who, as people in this room probably know, met his ignoble end by falling off or they used to say fell off drunk or maybe was pushed off a steamboat at Fort Benton in 1867 when he was still acting governor of the territory. And uh, this far-fetched story about the new identification was reported in the New York World on the last day of 1899 with a Butte dateline, though I never did see a similar story from a Montana newspaper. But the New York World reported that the owner, who was himself a descendant of General Miles, had suddenly recollected the words of a miner who saw the petrified man in Butte. His words, it was reported, were, it's the general. God rest his soul, it's the general. Asked who he was referring to, the old miner answered, General Marr, surely, if that is not the hand of Thomas Francis Marr, may my own hand be withered. They never explained why General Marr had a funny hand, but anyway, uh, so it went. Newspapers of the time in Montana and elsewhere were fully complicit in the dissemination of what we would now call fake news. By the way, uh, one of the presenters at this conference, Ken Robison, right over here at the front table, he lives in Great Falls and does much of his work in Fort Benton. He dug out many of the old newspaper references to the petrified man that I used in my article. I think it was the first time that maybe Ken and I met. I don't even know how, who recommended that uh, I turn to him, but it was uh, incredible. He, just, he loves to do research and he found so many great uh, pieces to that puzzle for me, and I've been a huge admirer of his work ever since. Anyway, I doubt that the reporters and editors of that day, um, who were probably just as skeptical and cynical as reporters and editors are nowadays, really believed in the petrified man. I'm sure that to them it was just another fun story, probably just harmless fun. It was certainly fun for Mark Twain. In 1862, working in Nevada, he wrote an article in a, a newspaper there about the discovery of a petrified man. He later admitted that he made up the story himself and claimed to have done so in hopes of ending the public's fascination with such hoaxes. The mania was becoming a little ridiculous, Twain wrote. I chose to kill the petrification mania with a delicate, a very delicate satire. Well, it must have been too delicate because the article was widely reprinted, only adding to the mania. Uh, and by the way, I never considered my story about the Montana petrified man to be entirely done because I wasn't able to determine what became of this thing after it ended its touring career. But after the story was published, I would hear over a couple of years, different people would call me with different ideas about where it may have ended up. And as I remember it, there were grounds for believing that it was somewhere in private hands, somewhere in Livingston, where its last owner lived. So if there are any ambitious historian detectives out there, I would urge them to get cracking on that. I would love to know myself. Uh, another history piece I worked on showed me how newspapers, even when they're trying their hardest to present the truth, fall short of that goal. This story was about the murder in 1908 of Yellowstone County Sheriff James T. Webb. I had a friend who worked in the county courthouse and he pointed out that there was a monument to Webb on the corner of the courthouse lawn. And I'm sure I passed by this monument myself hundreds of times over the years 
And if I ever read the engraving on it, it, it didn't stick, but I went and looked at it. And sure enough, this was 2008, and so it was coming up on the centennial of his murder. So I decided to do a story on this. And the story was that in 1908, uh, the Sheriff Webb had gone up to Roundup, which, which was then part of Yellowstone County, to talk to a man named William C. Bickford, who was a suspect in some horse thefts in Wyoming. And uh, Bickford was working as a shepherd on a ranch at the time, and after being interviewed by Sheriff Webb, was allowed to go back into the sheep wagon where he was alone for a while. And he suddenly emerged from the sheep wagon with a rifle and uh, fatally shot Webb. A day later, Bickford committed suicide after holding up in another sheep wagon, which had been surrounded by members of a posse. And the wagon, coincidentally, was parked on the banks of Horse Thief Creek, north of Roundup. That's supposedly true. And I did most of my research for this article in the files of two newspapers, the Billings Daily Gazette, which came out in the morning, and the Billings Daily Journal, which was an afternoon paper. And though they both agreed that the murder of Webb was a huge story in the relatively new city of Billings, they agreed on little else. The Gazette called it, uh, the said the manhunt for the killer, quote, maintained the interest of the whole population of Yellowstone County at fever heat. The Daily Journal said that nothing that has happened in Billings for years approached the excitement that prevailed this morning when it became known that Sheriff Webb had been murdered in a cold-blooded manner. But they disagreed with each other on material fact after material fact, offering stories that were in conflict with each other almost paragraph by paragraph. They even had different spellings of Bickford's name. It was a sobering reminder of how difficult it is to get everything right, particularly on a breaking news story. And I would like here to offer up a blanket apology for all historians, past, present, and future, who have used any of my news stories as the starting point of their research. Um, and I think the closest I ever came to writing the sort of history that people in this room are used to writing was a long story I wrote in 2003 about a Buffalo soldier named Horace Bivens. The story arose, as probably few of your research papers do, in a secondhand store in Missoula where I was poking around, and I came across a book called Fort Custer on the Bighorn, 1877 to 1898. And one of the chapters was about this Bivens, who was born on a farm in Virginia shortly after the Civil War to uh, uh, free black parents. And he later rose to prominence in the U.S. Army, in which he was said to have been the only man ever to win three Army marksmanship gold medals in one year. And he did so while serving in Fort Keogh over in uh, Miles City in 1894. And he later served in the Philippines, and he was also part of a unit that came to the rescue of Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders in Cuba. Then he served for a time in Fort Missoula and retired to Billings after his service. I spent several years working on the story about Bivens, just kind of whenever I had free time, I would try to find some more out about him. I, I you know, looked in other books, newspaper articles, census records, talked to people in Virginia. And one big regret I still have about that is we never managed to find some artifacts that he supposedly brought back from the Philippines and donated to the original Parmley Billings Library. And this collection was supposed to have included Philippine birds, shells, and fossils. 
including a pair of monkey-eating eagles, which I really would love to see. And, uh, and just as amazing, at least to me, an outcome of this story was that years later I was contacted by a representative of the Oxford University Press, which was preparing an eight-volume African-American national biography edited by Henry Louis Gates, Jr. The representative said she called me because I was an expert on Horace Bivens. I kind of laughed when she said that. Then I realized, well, I'm probably the only person to have written about him in 50 years, so I guess that might be true. Anyway, I ended up in this, you know, eight-volume thing, but come on, Oxford Press. I was, it was the highlight of my career. And, uh, and so here's another tip for anyone willing to follow up on it. The one question I was never able to answer about that story was what happened to Bivens after he left Billings in 1949, supposedly bound for Philadelphia. Given all his accomplishments, it's entirely possible there's more to tell about his life. And as part of my research for the story, I spoke by phone with a man in San Francisco who was convinced that Bivens was his grandfather. He said Horace Bivens took a Filipino wife, so-called, during his service in the Philippines, and that his father was the fruit of that union. And so I kept hearing from this possible grandson for years after. He, you know, he liked the story and <coughs> kind of spurred him to do his own research, and I was doing a little more, too, as I came across it. Anyway, and when I was cleaning out my files a few months ago, I came across my Horace Bivens file about that thick. I'm convinced there's a book in there, which I'm probably not going to write, but if anybody else is interested, just give me a call. And uh, that brings me to my last story. And this one is notable because it reminds us how very recent our oldest history is here in Montana. This story was about a man named Joseph Cochran, who was the first settler to file homestead, a homestead claim in what would become Yellowstone County. In that same year, 1877, was the year that the uh, group of about 800 Nez Perce Indians conducted the epic fighting retreat from Idaho to uh, just south of the Canadian border where they surrendered in the Bear Palm Mountains. And during that flight, a small raiding party split off from the main group under Chief Joseph, who was moving up Canyon Creek to the west of here. And the raiding party continued east along the Yellowstone River. And they came upon Cochran, who was cutting wood on the south side of the river with some other men. And they saw these, they didn't know they were Nez Perce, but they saw these Indians up the river across the, at a ford near their camp. And uh, of the six, they, they sent the oldest man over to parley with Cochran, who was armed with a rifle. But just after a short conversation, they continued on their way without incident. However, uh, Cochran soon discovered that they made off with his horses, which had been grazing a little downstream. And then uh, when Cochran got back to his homestead, he realized, or he learned, that uh, two wolfers who had been staying on his property in a tent were murdered, and that a number of his uh, belongings had been carried off, including saddles, a tent, large supplies of foodstuffs, a silver watch, and, quote, three suits of woolen underwear. He duly filed a depredation claim for $654.50 with the government. The claim was eventually approved by Congress, but when Cochran died in 1938, the claim was still unpaid. And here's the amazing part of the story. 
I first wrote about Cochrane's claim in the year 2000, 123 years after the Nez Perce raid. And I wrote about it because his daughter, who was living in California, was still trying to make good on the claim. And yes, that was his daughter. I wrote about his claim about maybe, I think, four times, maybe one more mention, but at least four times over the next 10 years. The last time in 2010 when his daughter, Kate Dotson, was coming up on her 100th birthday. And every time I wrote about Cochrane, I'd have to do the math again because my editor and I, we just always would, you just couldn't believe again that I was speaking with this guy's daughter. I mean, here it was, um, this guy whose claim against the government had been filed more than a decade before Montana became a state. But as I learned, Kate was the last of 10 children born to Joseph Cochran when he was in his 60s. So there I was talking to this man who was or the daughter of a man directly involved in one of the most important scenes and one of the most momentous incidents in Yellowstone history, Yellowstone County history, and which happened at a time that seemed impossibly distant. And although this isn't entirely related to uh, the rest of this, I can't resist reading it to you because it involved Chief Joseph. In 1882, on the, what's the Oakland Reservation, what is, what is now Oklahoma, where they had moved uh, Chief Joseph and the Indians under his command, were taken there after their surrender. And in 1882, the Indian agent convened a council specifically to talk about this claim filed by Joseph Cochran because at the time, apparently, it was still thought possible that the Nez Perce were somehow going to pay, pay him back. But Chief Joseph, whose eloquence is legendary, didn't think that was quite right, and he said to the Indian agent, when the war broke out between my people and the whites, property of either that fell into the hands of the others was considered to belong to the captors. It was the fortune of war. They took from us thousands of head of stock, both horses and cattle. Now we do not see how we can pay this claim. We have nothing to pay it with. We have lost everything. It is all past. And if I should see a white man with one of my horses that I had during the war, I would not wish to recover it, as the circumstances are all changed. I would say to him, I'm glad you have got it. How can you not love that guy? So let me tell you where the Cochran story ended, by the way. Kate Dotson tried for years to convince somebody in a position to do something about her father's claim that it had been intentionally switched with another claim, which was paid, while her father's claim disappeared. And she did this just on her own distant work, you know, from California, this retired school teacher trying to figure out what happened in Washington, D.C. And she made direct appeals to Conrad Burns and Denny Reberg and uh, Max Baucus, various governors. I mean, everybody. She's just really an amazingly uh, industrious, fun woman to talk to. But nobody could ever help her. And, and then uh, in 2010, I was contacted by uh, a local retired aerospace engineer by the name of Cleve Kimmel, who lived in Billings. And he had learned about the case and looked into it himself, including uh, some research back in D.C. where he often went for, uh, I don't know if it was for work or what, but he dove into the case and he determined, and he, 
presented pretty convincing evidence that the whole thing was uh, a, a much more familiar culprit than, than theft. It was just bureaucratic bungling and that when this case file was transferred from one agency to another to be paid, a clerk forgot to insert the file into the folder. And so there was this blank folder in the claims department and the only thing in it were later letters referencing the case but no actual claim. And it, it just really kind of angered Mr. Kimmel that nobody could rectify this mistake because he was convinced that the file was somewhere in the National Archives if somebody would just take the trouble to look for it. And I should also say that working with uh, Cleve Kimmel was uh, a reminder of how often over the years I would run into people like him. A surprising number were uh, retired federal workers who took up history as a hobby and uh, just did amazing research in this county and up and down Yellowstone Valley. And uh, there's just so many of them around here who've done really professional work to advance our knowledge of history. Anyway, that unpaid claim, Mr. Kimball says, is still waiting to be found. Yet another unsolved mystery from Montana's past, which I never had the time or resources to resolve. So it's not for nothing that journalism has been called the first draft of history. I wish you all luck in getting to the final draft of the incomplete stories that we journalists occasionally throw your way. Thank you.